Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about children, spirituality, and consciousness. I am your host, Marla Hughes. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they are the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling with unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. Each week, I will be interviewing authors, philosophers, spiritual teachers, doctors, and many more about the wisdom children bring into this world and how we can transform our lives with this knowledge. I am thrilled to have Dr. Melvin Morse back on the show today. Dr. Morse is a Johns Hopkins trained medical doctor and author of best-selling book, Closer to the Light, a book describing his personal experience as a physician with children who had had near-death experiences and his profound research in this area. If you missed his first interview, please go back and listen to his full bio and also listen to how he shares the story of how he began this beautiful journey into the world of children and near-death experiences. Welcome back, Dr. Morse. One of the children in our study, she had uh, fulminant bacterial meningitis, and uh, my partner and I resuscitated her. I'll show you the picture she drew, because I love this picture. Oh, wow. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Uh, here, right here, uh-huh. she, there she is on the gurney, and here I am at the head of the bed, and she's correctly uh, puts a hat on me. A hat? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, at, uh, there's so much hubbub and resuscitations, and so many people in the room that we have the team leader is identified by wearing a hat. Wow. This is my partner, David Christopher. He has his arms perfectly flexed in American Heart Association, perfect uh, resuscitation. Um, I gave him an A in cardiac resuscitation. <laughs> because it's showing CP, his CPR hands. <laughs> right. Yes. But there she is floating above her body. And then she's talking to this figure seated on a log. And she said uh, that that was Jesus. And she said, he's very nice. <laughs> and yet this Jesus looks more like a Santa Claus uh, yes. than, uh, than, you know, than our traditional uh, figures of Jesus. Wow. But interestingly enough, over here, you see this rainbow. And so she didn't have a life review, but she told us that this rainbow told her who she was and where she was to go. And that, that's a lot of what the life review is about. That's profound. Well, I know after studying the life review that you actually feel what others feel after you've, you've had an interaction with them and you actually feel how they feel you've made them feel. (laughs) And I, and I think after I learned about that, I walk in this life so differently now. I just, I think about that all the time, no matter, well, for example, the woman you were just talking about who was this big corporate person and, and what, what did it show was when she was a little girl being a crosswalk guard. And yeah. once again, just to be kind and loving. That's why unconditional love has to be part of the life review because you couldn't bear it otherwise. 
And you're absolutely right. You actually feel the pain that you cause others. Yes. And it's very similar to the, there's a meditative techniques. You know, I, I've wanted to understand the near-death experience profoundly. And so there's certain meditative techniques which replicate the life review in which you actually, in the state of meditation, experience the harm that you've done others. Wow. They're suffering as if it's your own. And that's why it's so important that the non-judgment and the unconditional love that comes from this God, you know, it's sort of like surrounding you and then helping you through the experience so that you can truly understand, you know, this is the consequence of your actions. And that's why when we look at people that have near-death experiences, you know, when we studied adults that had near-death experiences as children, we found, you know, we looked at their tax returns. We gave them all sorts of different psychological tests. We very carefully compared them to control groups. We found they had almost no fear of death. As one little girl told me, she said, I'm not really afraid to die because I know a little bit about it now. (laughs) (laughs) um, They give more money to charity as documented in their taxes uh, than our control groups. They spend more time with their families. They also spend more time alone in solitary reflection and in meditation. They're more likely to be in the helping professions. Crystal Merslock, the first child that I resuscitated, she's now in her 40s. She's a social worker. She just, you know, has a wonderful family, mm-hmm. done a beautiful job of raising her children, but has really dedicated her life to helping others mm-hmm. uh, as a social worker. Wow. And, and so this, it gives them, you know, the, it profoundly changes them. Yes. It's not like this one-time incident. It really yeah. changes, changes their lives. So what are the most profound lessons you have learned from the children you have interviewed? Life must be about learning to love like that. This sense of unconditional love. That the relationships that we have with others, that's what's important in life. And I, I guess the two most profound things that I've learned is, is one is all the things that I thought about life, <laughs> you know, particularly from a man's point of view, you know, where right. I and so, be, so scientific you know, successful and, pediatrician and I want to lecture all around the world and I want my books to be bestsellers and, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know, all of those sort of ego based things. Are, are really just a waste of time. Wow. You know, that that's, that's not what life is about. You know, life is about playing with your children, uh, developing relationships, uh, spending the time that it takes. The second thing I learned is, I, I don't know how to exactly say this, but don't fear making mistakes. Don't fear the bad stuff that you do. Don't fear the bad stuff that happens to you. As long as you're willing to learn from it and, you know, learn to both experience suffering and understand when we hurt others. Because what I say by to not fear all of that, though, is that by working through it, that's why we're here. You know, we're here to learn these lessons of love. And just like, you know, a child in learning to walk falls down again and again and again. 
you know, when, when we come to learn to love each other, we're going to fail. We're going to make lots of mistakes. Right. And there is, the, the children have told me this again and again and again. That, that is the one uniform message of the near-death experience is that life is for living, that this life is to learn to love each other. And as one child said to me, the light is for later. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's, that's so beautiful. Wow. So, so what can children teach us about what you call God consciousness and how can that help us live more spiritual, purposeful lives and talk a little bit about the ripple, the ripple effect. I love the ripple effect. <laughs> if, if it's a yeah. good ripple. <laughs> well, that's the, the ripple effect itself. One child described to me is, you know, again, when we did our study of the long-term follow-up of children who had near-death experiences, you know, I always, of course, asked them, what, what did this experience mean to you? Right. And, you know, I, I told you about the young man that said, you know, go back, you have a job to do. <laughs> yes, yes. Another young adult that we had, you know, studied as, uh, as part of our uh, research study, he told me that he learned that his life had an important meaning and important purpose. And, you know, so again, you know, I, I, it's like, it's like, I, I can't help What's myself. This one? Like, okay, okay, okay. So, you know, the, the important purpose again. You know. <laughs> but, but I, don't, I think that that's, I, I think that's natural. I think uh, certainly when I talk with skeptics, you know, that sort of cynicism, that sort of, you know, reluctance to really believe that these, that it could be as simple as, wow, you know, we see God when we die. Maybe God is with us throughout our lives. Right. But again, this young man saw the look on my face and he said, you know something? I don't know what the purpose of my life is. He said, maybe I'll never know. And then he described to me the ripple effect. He said, maybe I'll do something kind to someone. Maybe, maybe it'll be as simple as, just me smiling at somebody, or maybe it'll be, you know, uh, helping somebody that, you know, just uh, needs help on the street. And that then that person is somehow changed by what I do. And that that person influences someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else. And it's the compilation of all these ripples that I think creates a, a more loving consciousness. Right. I don't, what I've learned from these experiences is not to expect some sort of dramatic yes. event, but to look at the way these children then grow up to live their lives. And it, it's not something, you know, it's something that we all know is true, but we haven't had the experience of God telling us it's true. Right. We know that right. it's true that we're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to forgive, uh, that uh, we should, you know, help others, give money to charity, those kinds of things. The, the secrets of life uh, are apparently uh, right there in front of us. Yes. But and you're we, right. We've always known it. That's how, yeah. that's how we come into this world, right? And when you hear these things from children, at least for me, you're absolutely right. They yes. so ring true. Just like that young man that said to me, I knew it was God from the knowledge in his yes. voice. 
you know this is true from the way that they say it. So I, I think that that's one thing, but another, uh, I, I just want to share, you know, make sure I, I, I share this with you, is that one thing I think that is very hard for us adults, we're troubled by all the different faces of religion in the world. Mm-hmm. And even adults that have near-death experiences are often very troubled by, well, I saw, you know, when I saw heaven, it looked like this, but that isn't the heaven that somebody else saw. So does that mean that my heaven is different than your heaven? Or does that mean that, that then you didn't see the real heaven, that my heaven was the real heaven? These are actually sincere and difficult questions. And yet, when you look at children that have these experiences, you understand that they're talking in something that Lisa Smart calls a spiritual language. And when we understand that in the near-death experience or in the dying moments or any time of you know, profound spiritual experience, our language shifts. Right. It doesn't become this very uh, concrete, we can all agree that the color red is a certain wavelength of light. No, you know, uh, because remember, we all had to learn that as a yes. common experience. When we were kids, our parents had to say to us, you know, that's red, that's red, that's red, that's red. Well, we don't have that with these spiritual experiences. And so that's why one child says it's a wizard. And another child says, it's Jesus, it looks like Santa Claus. And another child uh, says, I went down a rainbow bridge to another world. But the sincerity and the truth in what they're saying tells us that they have experienced something. And it's something that they're just struggling to understand. They, They often don't speak in complete sentences. This is one of my, my favorite experiences. I'll have to show you. This is, this is a little girl who nearly died from fulminant uh, strep throat. Here she is, and she's coming out of the tunnel. You know, you know, so, so many times they talk about being in the tunnel. Right, stuff. right. Drawing herself as she comes out of the tunnel, and then she says that this is heaven. And she says to me, it was filled with colors I had never seen. Before. <laughs> oh, she didn't, uh, you know, I have, you know, when I have them draw pictures, you know, I have like, you know, the big box of crayons, you know, 122 different colors. Right. She just looked at all of those colors and she said, the colors that I saw, I've never seen those colors before. And that's the same true is of the experience itself. Yes. And what we can learn from that, though, is to be uh, less concrete or less, uh, you know, that if somebody else, you know, believes uh, in a different type of heaven than we believe, or, you know, if somebody, you know, is learning the same lessons of life from Buddha instead of from Jesus, you know, maybe we could be humble. And exactly. the child's near-death experience to not take it quite so seriously and realize that we're all having the same experience. Yeah. And to know it really is all about love. It's it's yeah. as simple as that. And I love 
when you say we can have all the science we want, but it is a matter of faith. Science is not enough. Can you just, I know that's pretty self-explanatory, but just comment on that. No, I I, uh, would like to, you know, to flesh that out a little bit because I don't think that people really understand that science has validated the near-death experience. Right. And, you know, in the year 2019 is a scientific fact. We will have this experience when we die. There's actually a large portion of our brain, not a small part of our brain, but a large portion of our brain is actually dedicated to having these kinds of experiences. So many people then, they say to me, well, well, wait a minute, doesn't that mean they're not real? I mean, aren't these experiences just caused by, you know, deranged chemicals at the point of death, or if you're saying there's an area in the brain which allows us to have this experience, well, isn't that mean it's some sort of hallucination? Right. And that's a very, very important question. And it, when you understand neuroscience, you know, as, as I was, a, you know, I'm retired now, but as a neuroscientist for 20 years, all the experiences that we have are mediated by our brain. When we see, that's because a large portion of our brain is processing visual images. When we hear, a large portion of our brain is processing auditory experiences. And we don't doubt that those are real. And so knowing that a large area of our brain actually mediates these experiences, that we're hardwired to experience God, we're hardwired to have this experience of unconditional love, to me, makes it more real. But certainly then, looking at the research that's been done on, for example, we were talking uh, before about how do people remember the experience, how comatose uh, patients have any sort of experience. There was uh, research done from the National Warfare Institute, uh, sort of chuckling because you you don't think of spiritual experience research cutting-edge spiritual research coming out of the military. But a friend of mine, uh, his name is Jim Winery, was the lead scientist on this. And they took fighter pilots and they whirled them in centrifuges at tremendous speeds to try to understand what kinds of G-forces the human body can take so that they can uh, make sure that the fighter pilots, the fighter planes don't go faster than the human brain can handle. And His research showed exactly what we learned in our research at Seattle Children's Hospital. And that is that as you come close to death, you lose consciousness and you can't remember anything. But when he brought those pilots right to the point of death, suddenly consciousness returned. And they had identical experiences that the children described to me. Right. Being the physical body, uh, oftentimes having profound life reviews, out-of-body experiences, seeing amazing bright lights, often transformative experiences. Many of the fighter pilots immediately resigned from the military and became <laughs> practice doctors. That's, that's correct. You know, so, so you would say, well, There's no doubt about it. Science has shown that these experiences are real. And yet some skeptics will then say to me, but wait a minute. Okay, I'll buy all of that, that there's an area of the brain that 
you know, well, you, it's not a matter of buying it. It's, it. This is all in the scientific literature. Right. An area of the brain that allows us to have this experience, that this is a part of the brain that turns on when we die as the rest of the brain is shutting down. And for most of us, it's the first time it's ever turned on during our lives. But why isn't this just some sort of final fireworks, some glorious right. thing? You know, why isn't this just some, you know, evolution has just eased us into the point of death? Yeah. I mean, so there, there's no way that I can argue with that personally. That's what I mean by that then. The faith. It's a matter of faith. Yes. And I think that there's, it's, it's beautiful that that's sort of built into the system. Because if someone wants to believe that the near-death experience is just some sort of final fireworks, some sort of benign way to ease us into the process of dying, well, that in itself is a very, very powerful concept. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a very important understanding. Uh, after we published uh, our research on children in the pediatric journals, I had hundreds, not dozens, but hundreds of primarily mothers, fathers too, but mothers writing to me and saying, at least I understand now that my child wasn't suffering right. during those last moments of life. Because mm-hmm. what we do in intensive care units is very traumatic. It's putting a lot of lines, starting IVs, drawing blood, all of these events. And so now we know from a scientific perspective that the last moments of life are pain-free. Mm-hmm. That in itself is very comforting to parents who've had to be, go through that experience. Right. And I understand when people think that, you know, maybe this is, these are the last fireworks, but when you put those to, that together with the stories of children reincarnation, the story, stories of shared death experiences, the stories of just these pure, innocent stories that these children, you know, come back Absolutely. to town. And then you even get into the stories that are, that children say at one and two years old about choosing their parents and those sorts of things. When, when you put it all together, it's just irrefutable in, in my, you know, well, in my mind. I, I can't emphasize that point enough. That is yeah. such an important point because The research on near-death experiences, by validating that these experiences are real. You know, one one young man said to me, he said, but was it real, Dr. Morse, you know, of his experience? Right, right. If it was real, you got to tell all the old people. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But knowing that these experiences are real then makes a whole host of other experiences, I think, real as well. Yes. I'm going to tell you why I I love, you know, being a scientist, I love talking to other scientists, and I love talking to skeptics. And when I was at Seattle Children's Hospital, one of the most profound skeptics there, he was on me all the time. You know, how do you know this? How do you know that? Did you think of this? Did you think of that? And all that is good, because that's why our... Articles got published in the, you know, the best medical journals because skeptics kept saying, but you haven't thought of this. You haven't thought of that. So this was one of the allergists at the hospital. And, (laughs) you know, when you scratch the surface of a skeptic, you hear the most astonishing stories. And one night he called me up at 10 o'clock at night 
And this was after I had presented uh, our research at Grand Rounds at the hospital. He called me up at 10 o'clock at night and he said, I've got to tell you what happened to me. Because finally, your research made me believe that I'm not crazy. And here's what happened to him. He was fishing for crawfish in uh, Lake Washington uh, with his son. His son was seven years old. And the way children do, his son, for unknown reasons, jumped in the family car, locked all the doors, and released the uh, parking brake. Oh, you know, must have been thinking that he was driving or something like that. Mm. The uh, car then drifted backwards into Lake Washington. And the physician that I was talking to, he actually dove into the water and tried to physically push the car back to the shore until he was being, you know, you know, drowned himself until he was being pushed under himself. And he said to me that at that moment, he left his body and that he and his son together went through this tunnel, through this rainbow, to this light. And he said that then he had a choice. And his choice was, could he stay there with his son or would he come back you know, to life? And he told me, uh, you know, he was, we were talking on the phone, but I could hear the, the tears in his voice. Right. I could hear the tears on his face. He said that was the hardest decision he had ever made, that decision to come back to life. You know, he yes, his a, little boy was not coming that, back. And he came back. And he said the experience was vividly real, that this isn't, so it's not like you think of a hallucination. He said he could actually see the bulb, you know, he had a little bulb spot on his right. head. He could actually see the bulb spot on his head from out of his body. And he said it so, I was like, he said, I was looking at it, I was thinking, really? I have that bulb spot? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I've heard you. <laughs> you, know, you know, right in the middle of this profound spiritual experience. He said to me that until he under you know learned of our near-death research, he had always just thought this was some sort of crazy grieving parents' dream. Right. And and near-death research gave him the courage to believe that what happened to him was real. Wow. How interesting how that came around him being such a skeptic. It's, it's like he wanted to believe so badly. That's, that's a beautiful story. So if you could take a walk with your five-year-old self, what would you say to yourself? Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. All the things that so often we know are real and then life comes along and seems to say differently. Yeah. I would say believe. Believe in what you know is true. I, I've got to stop that and just share with you a story because it, it, it so impacts on that. I love talking to skeptics. Yes. And I was talking with a fellow neuroscientist who was so, he was just adamant <laughs> to everything I was saying, you know, this is not science, you know. And, and had he, he done the research? Science, <laughs> study spirituality. But the reason why 
after I said to him, come on, you know, tell me what happened to you, that, that, that you, you know, have this vehemence. He said that when he was a little boy that you're talking about, when he was eight years old, he had an assignment in school in which they were supposed to write down, you know, the most wonderful experience that ever's happened to you, you know, that kind of thing. Right. You know, you know, you're, you know, uh, going to the beach or, you know, uh, going to an ice cream store with your father or something <laughs> yeah, like that. At that age, and yes. he wrote about his near-death experience. And his school teacher became furious and called his parents in and said, you know, he's just making stuff up. That's, you know, uh, you know, calling him out, basically. You know, I was giving them a sincere assignment. I wanted them to, you know, tell me something that really happened to them. And look, he just made this up. And he felt so ashamed. And so, yes. Oh, that's so you know, sad. And that just sort of led to this, you know, he just spent the rest of his life, you know, I will never believe in anything spiritual again. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's, it's a hard thing I would tell my five-year-old self because obviously we have to grow up and be skeptical. We, we can't, you know, as Carl Sagan said, we can't, our brains can't be so... Uh, open that our mind falls out. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Sagan. <laughs> we have to find that balance. Yes, yes. And and we have to we have to be aware that the truth is often where we don't think it is. That you know, uh, wow, what a question you've asked. <laughs> I guess I would. Here's I, you know, here's what I would say. I just I hope my five year old self would grow to understand this. I would say, you know, something. Almost everything that you think is important, that you'll learn is important, isn't. <laughs> wow. That's, wow. I think that that's quite the... Right. You know, I mean, but we, you know, we do have to grow up. We do have to get jobs. We do have to have mortgages. We do have to, you know, have that life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet we have to remember all the while that, you know, our blessings come in teardrops. Yes, as I'm like having teardrops right now listening, <laughs> listening to you. Yes. Well, thank you so much for today. Well, well first of all, are, are there any questions that anything you'd like to share with us that I, I have not asked you? Just to say again that this life is about learning to love. But then don't forget to love yourself. Yes. You know, so many times... Thoughts will, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do that? Why did I make this mistake? Why did I make that mistake? Uh, oddly enough, those are the times you have to love yourself. Right. You say, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, that was part of your learning process. That was part of you growing up. You know, so, uh, yeah, learn to love yourself as well as loving others. Yes, yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Morse. This has been just an amazing interview. And so this is a quote I'd like to end with. I think this was in your book. If not, it was something that you quoted on an interview because I've listened to all your interviews <laughs> and it is. Yet the real message these children have for us has to do with how to live life knowing that death is not to be feared. The knowledge that a compassionate, loving light awaits us all when we die 
is enormously reassuring to those who have experienced it. They describe it as a loving experience that they have never experienced while alive, and yet realize that living is somehow about learning to love like that. I love that quote. So thank you so much and for the beautiful blogs that you're sharing in the show notes that that you wrote about I have another the faint ding of the angels, which I love too. So I'll let the audience um well I'll go ahead and read this. I love this in your blog. It is the faint ding of angels. As yet one young told youth told me. I learned that everything in the universe is all connected in a great ball of light that rings the sound of life so loud, so loud, but as loud as it rings, the unaware can't hear it and the aware only think they can. I've got to share one more thing with you. Absolutely. (laughs) I I, I love it. (laughs) I've been thinking about what you you said, about what I really would like to share with people that are listening to this. Yes. Life is hard. Yeah. There's a lot of suffering involved in life. Yes, there is. Much of my research was done for grieving parents who have suffered, you know, the worst thing that any of us can imagine, the death of a child. Mm -hmm. But... All of us struggle. And I think it's important to know that when we die, we're going to get a hug and an attaboy and an amazing, you know, an amazing, you know, wow, you did it. Yes. (laughs) That loving light does wait for us. And that unconditional love is waiting for us. Yeah. And it's our true home. We will eventually get to that point. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. So appreciate it. So we'll see you next time. Hopefully you'll come on again. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Morris. Thank you so much, Dr. Morris, for this, this amazing heart opening and thought provoking information. If any of you would like to reach Dr. Morse, his email is melvin.morse, M-O-R-S-E, at yahoo.com. And he has two websites you can go to. The first one is melvinmorsemd.com, and the second is spiritualscientific.com. And of course, this will also be in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.